The text for this morning is going to be in Acts chapters 13, 14, and 15, if you want to turn there in your Bibles, Acts 13 through 15, as it's the uh, beginning of a series through Galatians here, I'm going to be reading Galatians 1, 1 through 10 this morning, so Galatians 1, 1 through 10. Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. We have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Let's pray. Father, as we embark on a new journey through the book of Galatians and look at this letter that Paul wrote to a church that was deserting the gospel of grace, Lord, I pray that you would make this practical in our own lives. Lord, I pray that our hearts would sing as we're reminded over and over again of the good news of the gospel of grace. Lord, I pray that you would help us now as we begin to get into the context of Paul's life so that we can understand this letter. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning, we're going to look, in a sense, it's going to be an introduction to the book of Galatians, uh, which is actually a letter to churches in the southern part of Galatia. And in order to do that, in order to understand a letter, we need to first understand what is going on in the situation that required this letter to be written. It's kind of like a phone conversation where you're listening to someone else talk on the phone and you can have a pretty good idea of the conversation, but you're only hearing one side. When we read a letter, an ancient letter like this, 
we need to figure out. We're hearing one side, one response to certain situations that are taking place. And so this morning, we're going to spend most of our time in the book of Acts, which will set up the context. It will help us feel what it was like for the Apostle Paul at this time in these certain places when this letter was written. But to begin with, I want to talk about a man named Martin Luther. Many of you might be familiar with him. He is most famously a German professor of theology, a composer, a priest, a monk, and a, and a seminal, maybe the seminal figure of the Protestant Reformation. He was born in 1483 and he died in 1546. But to Pope Leo X and to the Holy Emperor of uh, Rome, Charles V, Martin Luther was a heretic, and to the Emperor of Rome, he was an outlaw. And the reason why is he would not renounce his writings and his defense of the gospel of Jesus Christ as he pointed out how the Catholic Church was adding to what Christ had done for salvation, Martin Luther refused to the Pope's command to renounce his writings that preserved the gospel of grace. And he refused to the emperor. He's willing to become an outlaw for the sake of the gospel. He wrote a commentary on Galatians on the, this letter that Paul wrote. And I just want to read a few paragraphs to you. As he argues that from the very beginning, at the moment that Satan entered into the garden, he has one main plan. The enemy's plan to destroy grace. Listen to Martin Luther. For the one doctrine which I have supremely at heart, that is, faith in Christ, from whom, through whom, and unto whom all my theological thinking flows back and forth day and night. Not that I find I have grasped anything of wisdom so high, so broad, and so profound, and beyond the meager rudiments and fragments and I am ashamed that my poor and uninspired comments on so great an apostle and chosen instrument of God should be published. Yet, I am compelled to forget my shame and to be quite shameless in view of the horrible profanation and abomination which I've always raged in the church of God and still rage to today against this one solid rock which we call the doctrine of justification. Here's what he means by that. I mean the doctrine that we are redeemed from sin, death, and the devil, and are partakers of eternal life, not by ourselves, and certainly not by our works, which are less than ourselves, 
but by the help of another, the only begotten Son of God, Jesus Christ. So he says, I'll be made a fool and I'll fight with all my might for the doctrine of justification. And what the doctrine of justification is, is that a man is found not guilty and saved not by anything of his own working or any of his own goodness, but only by the grace of God. Then he says this, this rock, he's talking of justification by faith. This rock was shaken by Satan in the garden, in paradise. When he persuaded our first parents, that'd be Adam and Eve, that they might be their own wisdom and power and become like God. Abandoning faith in God who had given them life and promised its continuance. So what he's saying is from the very beginning... Satan came to Adam and Eve and said, you can do it on your own. You don't need God. You don't need to live by faith in his words. And then he says this, shortly afterwards, that liar and murderer, always true to himself, incited a brother to murder his brother for no other reason than that the latter, a godly man, had offered by faith a more excellent sacrifice, while he himself, being ungodly, had offered his own works without faith and had not pleased God. He said, this serpent, Satan, put in the heart of Cain hatred for his brother because God accepted Abel's offering because it was offered by faith. And he offered his own by works and it was rejected. And then he says, And after this, there followed a ceaseless, intolerable persecution of this same faith by Satan through the sons of Cain until God was compelled to purge the world and defend Noah, the preacher of righteousness, by the means of a flood. Nevertheless, Satan continued his work in Ham, the third son of Noah, and in others too many to mention. Thereafter, the whole world acted like a madman against faith. As St. Paul says, they went on his own way, hoping to placate a god or goddesses and, and gods and goddesses by his own works. That is, by hoping without the aid of Christ and by his own works to redeem himself from evil and sins. All this is sufficiently evidenced by the doings and writings of all the nations. He said, the nations like madmen begin to speak of good works and how a person can be made right with God. This is all world religions trying on their own. And Luther's saying it started in the garden. And then he says, but these are nothing in comparison with what the people of God, Israel, or the synagogue, or those who are blessed, who were blessed beyond all others, not only with their sure promises given to their fathers and with the law given by God through angels, but also with the constant testimony of the words, miracles, and examples of the prophets. Yet even among them, 
So he says, even the people that were given the prophets and the miracles and all these extra privileges, even among them, Satan had a work. Even among them, Satan, the fury of self-righteousness, had such success that after killing all the prophets, they killed the very Son of God Himself, their promised Messiah, and all for the same reason. Namely, that they taught that we men are received into favor of God by grace, by the grace of God and not our own righteousness. This is the sum of the doctrine of the devil and of the world from the beginning. And here's, quote, here's the devil's doctrine. We will not appear to do evil, but whatever we do, God must approve of it, and all of his prophets must agree. And if they do not, let them die. Let Abel perish and Cain live. The devil says, let this be our law. Let this be our battle cry. We're not going to try to appear evil, but we will fight grace at any point we can. You see, Martin Luther understood that as long as you were going to stand for the doctrine of justification by faith and not by works, that you were going to have Satan railing against you and you're going to have the lost world railing against you. And you're going to have your own inward pride and flesh railing against you. And so to get into the context of seeing this in Paul's day, I want us to turn to Acts. And I'll just kind of try to bring us up to the point of Paul's letter so we can get a flavor of what Paul is dealing with when he writes this. Uh, so if you want to turn to Acts chapter 8, I'm just going to real quickly just kind of show you the progression of the church up to Acts 15. In Acts chapter 8, what we see is Saul, who is the author of Galatians. He's the author of this letter to the churches at, at Galatia. And his name was changed to Paul, but before he was Paul, he was Saul. And in chapter 8, we see Saul, who is so self-righteous, who is so religious, who has worked harder than almost anyone in his day at religion. We see him go to the high priest and say, give me letters of your approval so I can go into the synagogues in Damascus. And if I find anyone there that is of the way, which is the, of Christ, of grace, let me have your official approval to go to these churches and arrest them and drag them back to be put on trial. You can see the seed of the snake and the selfish pride and self-righteousness in 
Saul himself. And then what we see in chapter 9 is how Saul is converted, how God saves him. While he's on the road with murder in his heart towards Christians, God saves him. God blinds him. Jesus says, why are you persecuting me, Saul? Saul says, who is this? And he says, this is Jesus Christ whom you are persecuting. And God told him that you're going to follow me. You're going to be the messenger to the Gentiles. You're going to carry this Christian message which you've been fighting against to the Gentile people. And so in chapter 9, you can read about his conversion. And then in verse 23, almost immediately after Saul's converted and his name's changed to Paul, he begins preaching boldly the gospel of grace. And as soon as he does that, look at, look at verse 23 in chapter 9. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. He was once the self-righteous, murderous person who hated grace. And as soon as he began preaching grace, his own kind, the Jewish self-righteous people wanted to kill him. This is what Satan was after in the garden and it's what was true in Paul's day. And then we see in verse 27 that the apostles were afraid of Paul. People were saying that now Paul is preaching the gospel of grace. But the apostles knew that this was one of their great oppressors. They were afraid of him. Could they really trust him? Was this a trick? Because the Apostle Paul became an apostle unlike the rest of them did. You see, they, he wasn't chosen by Christ while Christ was on this earth in the same way the rest of the disciples were, the rest of the apostles were. Rather, Christ showed himself in a vision, so the rest of the apostles are trying to figure out, what do you do with this guy? The Christians are trying to, he's kind of like the oddball apostle and is he trying to trick us and then you get to chapter 10 and you see Peter trying to figure out God is showing him that salvation is for the Gentiles not only for the Jews Peter gets to witness that the Gentiles received the Holy Spirit just as the Jews who trusted in Christ received the Holy Spirit so he's starting to figure out that this gospel comes forth or goes forth into all the world to Gentiles as well. And then we get to chapter 11. And as Peter begins to share of the things that happened in chapter 10 with the rest of the apostles, it says, when they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God saying, then to the Gentiles, God has also granted repentance that leads to life. And then we get to verse 25, and we read that Barnabas 
went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. The first time the followers of the way were now called Christians, we read this in Acts eleven twenty-five. So you have Paul with the apostles spending a year at Antioch together. And if we can throw the map up here, I'm such a visual person and I think this is helpful to see this. When we begin at chapter 13 of Acts, chapters 13 and 14, what we see is Paul's first missionary journey to Galatia. And, and I'll show you how this works here. So Antioch is right here. Here's where Paul spent a year. Jerusalem's down here. Antioch's up there. This is all present-day Turkey. That, uh, that uh, terrorist attack you read about in Istanbul would have been right up towards the top of, of Asia there. But that whole thing is Turkey today. But when Paul begins his, his missionary journey, he takes this blue line right here, and he comes down to Cyprus and to Patmos. And then he comes up here to Perga, and then he gets up into Galatia. And there you get Antioch of Poseidon and Iconium and Lystra and Derby. And at Derby, Paul turns around and comes back on this orange line and goes back to Antioch. And we'll just leave this up because as we're going through Acts here, I want you to picture this journey and where Paul is going. And he's writing his letter to those churches in Galatia. In the southern part there, on that first missionary journey, he writes that letter after chapter 14 in the book of Acts and before the council in Jerusalem in chapter 15. So let's just read through some of this together and feel the context of what's going on in Paul's day. Look at chapter 13, starting in verse 13. Acts chapter 13, starting in verse 13. Now Paul and his companions sent sail from Paphmos, or Pampho, Paphmos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. So he went with them uh, to Cyprus there, but then he left as soon as he got up and started heading north. John left him. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Poseidon. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. And after reading the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent message to them, saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So get the picture. Paul shows up in a synagogue. Instead of going to arrest people, now he goes there and he wants to bring the grace of God to the Jewish people. He wants to show them how Christ is the fulfillment of God's plan. He reads Scripture and they say, all right, 
Do you have any words of encouragement? And we don't have time to read it, but go home and read his sermon that he preaches. And he shows the Jewish people how Christ, all, all their promises, all the way back to God saving them out of Egypt, and through David... They're to be looking for the grace of God in a Savior. And his sermon culminates in verse 38. You can look at verse 38 of chapter 13. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed from the law of Moses. Here's what he's saying. You guys have had the law of Moses, but the law of Moses could not do what this gospel can do from you, for you. The law of Moses told you what God loves and what God hates. It, show, it, it, it spoke the law of God. But that offered no hope to sinful people because the law of God stood above sinful man and held him in slavery to that law because man cannot be good enough. So he says, a freeing thing has happened now that Christ has come. Let me read it again in verse 39. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said of the prophets should come about. So he's warning these Jews. He says, be careful, because here's what the prophets say. Look, you scoffers, and be astounded and perish. For I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. So he says, be careful. I'm telling you about the culmination of the whole Testament. Your Savior is here. But beware, the prophet said, many of you aren't going to believe it. And verse 42 says, As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. Boy, the trip to the synagogue was different this Sunday. These guys show up from out of town. They read Scripture. Then they basically tie the whole Testament for us and say everything's culminated in this Christ. And he says we're freed from the law now. And so they begged him, Will you come back next week, the next Sabbath. Then verse 43, it says, and after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism, devout converts to Judaism, followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. So imagine it. You have some of the good Jews begin following this new teaching. They begin following Paul and Barnabas. And Paul and Barnabas says, Beware that you don't leave the grace of God. Their whole life they've been living by the law. But Paul says, Beware. That's what he says um, in verse 43 at the end of it. As they spoke with them, he urged them to continue in the grace of God. 
Don't just receive it now. Continue in it. And then verse 44 says, The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowd, so these are other Jews who didn't follow them, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. You see the seed of the serpent rise up in these Jews as they, some of their best friends who were so devout are following this new way of grace. So they begin to contradict what was, they were saying. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly saying, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first. Here's what he says to these Jews that are contradicting him. He says, it was necessary I came to the synagogue and told you about the grace of God first. But then he says this, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord commanded us, saying, I've made you a light to the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. He says, since you hate the message of grace and have denied eternal life, I'm going to turn from the synagogue now and I'm going to go share this good news with the Gentiles. You want to make legalistic Jews mad? You tell them that God has a place for the Gentiles in his grace. And that it was his plan to have Israel, God's chosen people, that they were chosen to be a light to all the nations. So you can see the tension surrounding Paul, can't you? Can you imagine the drama that's going on in this city as divisions are becoming evident? In verse 48... When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. So as many of the Gentiles who were appointed to eternal life by the mere grace and choice of God, when they heard this message, they believed. Can you imagine how mad the Jews would be? Not only has he said, I'm going to the Gentiles, they have to watch the Gentiles celebrate as they see that the grace of God is for them as well. So we see different factions of people. Some Jews who were devout are following Paul and Barnabas. And Paul and Barnabas are saying, be careful, stay with the grace of God. And then you have other Jews that hate their message and are trying to contradict it. And then you have some Gentiles who are praising God because they're believing in it. And obviously, you have some Gentiles who aren't believing, who were not appointed to eternal life. And then we get to chapter 14. Well, let me finish the end of chapter 13. Um, in verse 49, And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region, but the Jews incited 
the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. So you, can you see that on the map there, how they go from right up here and they move over to Iconium? And the way they drove them out of that city is they got the women of high standing, the men of high standing, and they got them together, the powers to be, and says, let's push them out. Let's, let's get them out of here. And then we get to chapter 14, and look at what we see. Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue. This is their custom. And they spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time. (laughs) I love that. So the unbelievers stirred up the people and poisoned the minds against the Paul and Barnabas. So, work isn't going to go fast here. They stayed a long time. This might be where I hightail it and go. Right? All their, all their minds are poisoned to the gospel of grace because of these people. It'd be so easy to just say, oh, they're not open to it. But no, Paul and Barnabas, they stay longer. So they remained for a long time speaking boldly for the Lord who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. And when an attempt was made by both the Gentiles and the Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe. So you see them moving to the next cities in Galatia. Cities of Lyconia into the surrounding country, and there they continued to preach the gospel. And we see Paul and Barnabas at List, they come to Lystra and the people, they do some miracles, people come to worship them, and they say, we're not gods. You know, they're calling them Zeus and Hermes. Obviously, these gods have come down. No, they're just people proclaiming the grace of God, and through the power of Jesus Christ, Miraculous things are happening. Then we get to verse 19. If you want to be a grace preacher, you're going to have enemies, but for Paul, I mean, this is severe. But the Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, from the two places they started, remember? They were driven out of Antioch, then they went to Iconium. So those two towns... Obviously, they left a ripple effect in the towns and they said, we got to stop these guys. So the Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, (laughs) he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. And when they had preached the gospel to that city, they made many disciples and returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. Do you see the boldness here? 
Antioch and Iconium just sent people to incite the crowds, and they stone him to death, it seems like. And the apostles pray for him. They gather about him, and he raises back up. And where does he go? Right back to where he came from. Why? If you know the Apostle Paul, and you know his heart, he does everything he does for the sake of the elect, for the church, for the believers. The reason why he goes back to those cities is because his brothers and sisters in Christ are there. And he knows the enemy is really torqued off. And he knows there's a lot of false teachers. And he knows that they need to be strengthened. And we read this. Verse 21, when they had preached the gospel to that city, they had made many disciples. They returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. Look at what it says. Strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to what? Continue in the faith. You see, we read that, and we just think, continue in Christianity. But what does Paul know their big struggle is going to be? To not believe in salvation by faith, but salvation by works. But he argues, continue in the faith, which is handed down to him by God through his grace in the person of Christ. And, and so he says... And saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. He tells these brothers and sisters, you're going to have to, you know, Paul just got stoned. He knows it's not going to go easy for the Christians. And he reminds them that it's through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they appointed leaders for them in every church, this is him caring for the flock, finding elders, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. And you just see this beautiful picture of Paul. He wants to get back to them, but then he knows God has other leaders there to take care of the flock. And then he commits them to the Lord. If these are Christ's sheep, Christ will shepherd them. Christ will raise up elders. Christ will raise up people to protect them. And then in verse 24 we read, then they passed through Poseidon and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken in Perga, they went down to Atalia. And from there they set sail back to Antioch, where the, they first began, where they, had commend, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles, and they remained no little time with the disciples. So here's Paul's first missionary journey. And it's to these churches in Galatia. Now, when you're reading in Acts, you begin at chapter 15. And between chapter 14 and chapter 15 is when Paul writes his letter to these churches. All right? So we're going to peek ahead. We're going to look at chapter 15. Because remember, we're looking at what was going on when Paul wrote this letter. 
what was going on in these churches? What would the atmosphere have been like? What would it have been like to be a Christian in these places? We just got to journey with Paul through these churches. Well, look at what they're dealing with at this Jerusalem council in chapter 15. Look at verse 1. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers. So, picture it. Men came from Judea down in Jerusalem. You want to know where the conservative Jews are? Not the liberal ones? They come from Jerusalem. So, some of those Jews came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers. Here's what they're saying. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses... You cannot be saved. So the Christians are gathered in Jerusalem. What are we going to do? Some devout Christ followers are saying that unless we're circumcised, unless we live according to the law of Moses, we cannot be saved. That's the issue that's on the table. And then, and then we read in verse 2, after Paul and Barnabas had no small discussion and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and and brought great joy to all the brothers. And when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and by the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But verse 5 says, But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, so these are people that think Jesus is the Christ, rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them, and to keep them, or in order to keep them from the law, uh, to keep them to, or to keep the law of Moses. And the apostles and the elders gathered together to consider this matter. So at this council, you have Pharisees there who are trusting in Christ, but they say these Gentiles who are being saved, they have to keep the law. They have to be circumcised. You see, it's Jesus plus works equals true salvation. They're called Judaizers. As we go through the book of Galatians and we're talking about Judaizers, these are Jews who are trusting in Christ as the Messiah but destroying the gospel by adding to it. You see, they think Jesus plus Moses equals better gospel. Where Paul says Jesus plus Moses equals no good news. And as I can see, I'm halfway through my sermon and I'm up with time here. <laughs> so we're going to cut this sermon in half and pick up next week with part two of the introduction. But the thing that I want you to gather is that from the beginning. From the very beginning of time, the grace of God has been under attack by Satan, by unbelievers, and by every human heart 
that seeks self-glorification. You know, you might think in your mind, why would anyone ever oppose grace? That seems so unnatural. Let me give you one illustration. Let's imagine that here this spring, when I go to Louisville to graduate, and I go to walk and finally graduate after six years as a seminary, let's say I get up there and they say, Sam Ellison, here's your diploma. You get to graduate with your Master's of Divinity, not because you completed the course, not because you did anything good, but only because I'm going to hand you the diploma. Am I honored at this moment? What if they said, your work was terrible? You didn't do anything right. What's my heart going to do in that moment? And I'm going to say, oh, praise God for grace. No, I'm going to hate it. Because my heart is seeking praise. The sinful heart wants to steal glory for God and be praised themselves. And the goal as we go through the book of Galatians is not to just rail against the Roman Catholic Church that their doctrine adds to the gospel of Christ, making it a works religion. It's not to sit there and rail against them so much as all of our hearts, moment by moment, are going to be tempted to believe the lie that I am accepted because I'm good enough. And proof that you believe that is because some days you think, God's happy with me today. And other days you think, God's unhappy with me. And you think that because of your works. But the gospel of Jesus Christ is, there is no one who passes. Everybody gets an F. If we want to try to keep the law, we have to keep the whole law. If we break the law at one point, we break the entire law. And the good news that I want to leave you with this morning is this. I know every one of you is a sinner. And I know every one of you cannot do enough good works to earn your salvation. But the good news is, is God came to save not those who are well, but the sick. He came to call the sinners to this amazing gospel of grace, which teaches you can't add one thing to the good news. It's a 100% gift offered to rebels who do not deserve it to be received by faith. Paul was willing to give his life for that doctrine. Martin Luther was willing to risk his life for that doctrine. And your heart and my heart will be tempted to give it up as we begin to look to be happy in our own works. We're saved so that we can actually do good works. I want to leave you with one verse. Listen to how Paul says this in Romans 6.12. Paul doesn't say, just go on sinning so that grace may abound. Here's what he says. He says, let not sin reign in your mortal body. Now think of the word reign. A king 
reigns. Don't let sin reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Right? Who obeys the reign of somebody? Subjects who are slaves obey the king. Don't let the king of sin reign in your mortal body and make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. Here's what he's saying. Don't take your life and your mind and all that you are and say, sin, I'm an instrument to whatever you want to do with me. Don't do that, Paul says. But present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness sake. Now listen what he says. For sin will have no dominion over you. Here's what Paul tells the Christian. Sin is no longer king over your heart. Sin will no longer have dominion over you since you are no longer under law, but under grace. Here's what I want you to hear. Jesus, when he, when he tells the adulterous woman who's here to condemn you and he's standing there with her all alone and he says, neither do I condemn you. Now go sin no more. Jesus isn't saying... I've forgiven th these sins. Now you better make sure you don't sin again. You know what Jesus is saying? He says, I've forgiven you your sins. He's saying, you're no longer under law anymore. You don't have this king anymore. What he's saying is this, is you have grace above you and you don't have to go on being a slave to that rotten king sin anymore. He's not saying go earn your salvation. He's saying you don't have to go submit to that master anymore that brings death in your life. By the grace of God, you now have grace above you, which means you're free and you're forgiven to do what? To finally obey Christ. So we do good works because we're freed up from a rotten king. Not to earn our salvation, but we're freed up to finally live, begin living the way we're meant to live when our relationship with God is restored. Father, thank you so much for the gospel of grace. Lord, I thank you that when Christ died and he cried out, it is finished, that there's nothing more that could be added to our salvation. All the works needed to purchase us were done in the person of Jesus Christ as a replacement for our sin. Father, I pray that you help us never leave the grace of God. Father, I pray that you will keep us rejoicing and singing as sinners who've been redeemed by grace. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.